Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by U.S. Cleaners with locations in Amarillo and Canyon. This local business has been family-owned since 1995. In fact, in 2022, last year, I interviewed Taylor Van Valkenburg on this podcast about her family business. Over the years, they've developed a loyal, satisfied customer base. U.S. Cleaners offers pickup and delivery services, works hard to stay up to date with the latest technology, and cleans everything from clothing to uniforms, bedding, and tablecloths, residential or commercial. To learn more, visit uscleanersamarillo.com. That's uscleanersamarillo.com. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Amarillo National Bank online at anb.com. That's where I bank. And to Amarillo ISD. Read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Chad Connor. And Chad Connor has a story. I've interviewed guests before who have such interesting elements of their identity that they're sort of hard to classify. And Chad turns that description up to 11. At the most basic level, he is the executive director of Axe Community, a faith-based organization with locations in the San Jacinto neighborhood and in downtown Amarillo. And we definitely talk about that. I won't say much more about the rest of it because I want you to be surprised where this conversation takes us. And it extends from Amarillo to the casinos of Las Vegas, to the streets of India, to, well, YouTube. It's quite a ride. Here's Chad Connor. Chad Connor, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm excited to talk to you. I know we've spoken in the past. It's several years ago, um, and it wasn't for a podcast. So I, I want to start with you, though, the same way I start with all my guests, and that's just to ask, why are you here in Amarillo? So what brought you to this area? Born and raised. It's a place that sucks people back in. You know, I mean, I, I left the day I turned 21. Did you really? I did. I moved to Vegas and... Uh, and was pretty excited about it, but ended up back here and have absolutely fallen in love with the place, the people, and uh, now I can't imagine being somewhere else. Okay. Did you have a lot of family here? Like, do you know what brought them to this area? Uh, you know, I really don't know how we all ended up sort of in this area, but my entire family okay. is uh, from here. My mom sort of grew up in the Austin area, and I think that... Boys Ranch in Borger is actually what pulled her and uh, and my grandparents here. Okay, and then my dad was born here, and uh, and my entire family on his side has lived here right. pretty much my whole life. So you were born and raised here. Where did you go to school? So I went to Randall. Okay, is where I graduated from. Absolutely loved it. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's one of those things some people have incredible high school memories. I'm one of those people. I, okay. uh, I was really great, loved it from the time that, that I can really remember being in all the way back to, to like elementary school. Like I just, I really loved the entire experience. So you said that once you, uh, you know, kind of graduated, you just took off, you went to Vegas. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Like, did you did you have a plan? Was it just, I'm out of here? I mean, what, what were you thinking? So I had gotten pretty into poker. Okay. And uh, what, give, give me a time frame. Like what, what years? 
I didn't start playing poker at all until after high school. Okay. And then buddies and I would have the typical guys' night and play a little tournament amongst ourselves. Right. Nothing big. So this you know, is like sitting at a table poker. Was it was online poker no, not starting yet. up there? Or not was yet. Predating this was, that. This okay. was all just me and high school buddies cooking out, having a couple beers, playing cards, you okay. know. And I just kept winning. And so uh, one of my buddies said, hey, you should go to this place, and they've got a bigger game. And I went, and I crushed, and I crushed, and I crushed. And eventually, I was like, I think I'm good enough to go do this. Hmm. So the day I turned 21, I went and did it. And uh, I lived in Vegas for almost five years. There are a lot of people who are good at poker, people who have a skill at it. They'll go to Vegas two or three times <laughs> a year. They'll play, you know come back with a few thousand dollars you moved there i did so that's a little bit different did you did you go thinking okay i'm just that's going to be my job for the next few years i'm going to try to do this thing yeah you know i mean when when you're young and you grew up in amarillo you kind of want out anyways Mm -hmm. most of the time you at least want to go see what somewhere else is about and so i really did think that i was good enough to go play but if i wasn't I could find something else. Right. Big city, lots of fun. You know, it just seemed like the adventure of a lifetime. And I thought, I don't really have anything else great going on at the moment. Let's go do this. I built up a really nice bankroll. And uh, I had a a little bit of room to make some mistakes early. And and so I went and it was a lot easier than I thought, (laughs) actually, in the beginning. This was right after, like, the big boom in poker. Okay. And so... What I expected was like a bunch of really nitty pros that were going to be just, you know, tough to play. And what I found was people who had never played before that were like, I saw this on TV. I want to go play that game. All right. And so they were playing at levels that they had no business playing. And so it really was kind of an easy thing to just sort of jump in. And uh, it certainly had its ups and downs. Uh, but I paid my bills doing that for a long time. What years was that? So I moved out there. It would have been, oh man, that would have been 2005. Okay. Um, and I moved back at the end of 2009. Okay. Did like, were you working here in Amarillo before that? Did you have a career? Had you gone to college? Like what, what was your situation here before you left? So I'm an entrepreneur, kind of a serial entrepreneur. Okay. And, uh, and I had just sort of lost a business and I was playing somewhat professionally here. That was sort of the as, job. As much as you could. Yeah, right? I mean, th- there were places where you could go and play, but it just wasn't enough volume mm-hmm. to be able to, to really go for it. So I, I was doing all kinds of little things just to, to make it by, but it was, uh, it was mostly poker the entire year before I left. Wow. So. And then just give me a sense of what it was like when you were there, if your quote job in Vegas is to play poker, what did it look like? Like, were you in a different casino every day? Was it once or twice a week? What kind of churn was there, I guess? <laughs> well, it's way less sexy than you expect it to be because at the end of the day, what you choose to do as a job ends up being a job, even right. if it used to be fun. Uh, but I'll never forget the the day that I pulled into Vegas, you know, just so excited, but didn't know a single person, didn't know what part of town I should stay mm-hmm. in. I mean, there was really, I, I, I really, looking back, made one of the dumbest decisions you could ever make by just 
packing my stuff up and saying I'm leaving in two days. Without a plan. Yeah, I had no plan whatsoever. Um, so I got there and really just tried to focus on having a good time, meet a few people. Obviously, I needed to be playing because that was going to be sort of what I was doing for a career. But it ended up turning into 40 to 50 hours a week Okay, at the Venetian. A total grind. You know, there's there's ups and downs. There's days where you might win a ton of money. Uh, but it turned into a complete grind. And it's actually kind of what kicked me out of Vegas, so to speak, is um, the way that you sort of offset that with all that money coming in is I went out and I partied just yeah. way too hard, you spend way it. too much. And uh, and ended up, you know, I have a, a bit of addictive personality and it did not go well for me. Okay. I, I came home with my tail between my, my legs and it had nothing to do with poker. It had everything to do with me ruining yeah. the rest of the areas of my life. Financial management Absolutely. and everything else. Yeah. My last year, you know, I laugh. I, I did incredibly well and I got my $35,000 car repoed. Wow. Okay. I'm curious about people who do this, you know, to, to make a living. Are you playing like at all hours of the day? Are you focusing on certain times when you've got more high rollers who are going to be playing probably at night? I mean, are you thinking about all those kinds of details? Absolutely. So the, the, the main strategy I started with is, uh, the later it gets the people are in Vegas, they're there to have a good time. Right. The, 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 they're looser, a little bit uh, the lubricated wilder. by yes. alcohol and absolutely. So, so that's kind of in the beginning, that's what you're sort of looking for is just where are the good games that you can sort of have an edge. Mm-hmm. Um, as you get more and more into that entire world, you realize you don't necessarily need that. And you end up finding the places that are the most comfortable. Okay. One of the reasons I chose Venetian is they had Fiji water. And so okay. when you're sitting at a poker table eight hours a day, it's those little tiny amenities yeah. that end up making it a better experience for you. And so as funny as that sounds, the Venetian was sort of my go-to because it was so comfortable. And then if I wanted to go grab something to eat, it was in close proximity. Yeah. You know, it's it's those little things that you would never think about that ended up making that sort of the place where I played the most. Do you develop reputation or relationships with other players like maybe even the dealers and stuff like you all know each other because you're there every day right absolutely um you know i would say that there there was probably 10 of us that spent most of our days there now we don't want to end up at the same table together we you know typically we're uh we're absolutely trying to stay away from each other because what we're hoping for y'all are the good ones yeah i mean that's the the idea is to to try and end up with a table full of people who are traveling and hung over from the night before and and just kind of hope that you have a good run of cards and things pan out for you that day um but the nice thing about playing every single day like that is the variance you know, the, the, the lucky side of things, it sort of takes a back seat because mm-hmm. you're getting enough volume in for it to go your way, go against you. It sort of right. levels out and, and the skill can kind of do the talking. Yeah. The, the last thing I wanted to ask about that is how do you think about risk, you know, in a situation like yours? You know, if somebody saves up some money, they go to Vegas once a year, they're like, I'm going to have fun with this money. I probably won't come home with it. Mm-hmm. They're going to take bigger risks. Sure. Are, are you being a little bit more risk averse? Are you kind of playing the odds when you're doing it day in and day out? Or do you know this, this is how I do it? So the idea is really to 
play the same. Okay. You, if if you are an aggressive player, stay aggressive. You know, let the variance level out. That's that's you really don't want to cause the about. variance right. yourself. Right. So. Um, you know, if, if there's somebody that's absolutely wild at your table, obviously you're going to play a little differently. If your entire table is really tight, you're going to play a little bit differently. But the idea is to play a very consistent game yourself so that over time mm-hmm. that the volume is sort of what gives you the edge. So it sounds like you knew when it was time to end that experiment. It was pretty clear for you? Yeah, well, you know, again... The poker was never the problem. Yeah, I won my last year. Uh, it was really the depth that my addiction got to, where I didn't really have a choice okay. anymore. I was just so out of control. You know, look, I looked in the mirror one day and I was just like, I have no idea who I am. I've, I don't recognize this guy. I don't like this guy. I don't want to be this guy. And so I called my mom and said, I have no money. Can I sleep on your couch? And she said. Come home as fast as you can, and yeah. that's that's what happened. Was that all the plan you had? Was I got to go back to where somebody will take me in? Yeah, I mean, it it was uh, at the time I had a, a really severe cocaine addiction. Okay, uh, I was an alcoholic. I've been clean fourteen years now, um, and sobriety fits really well. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it's one of those things that when things are that out of control, you just really, you have to find one place where, you know, you can sort of be safe and you just go for it. It's kind of like when I went there, I had no plan. You it was jumped. just like, it, that's the next step forward. In that case, I couldn't find another step. And so it was just, it was, it was the easiest decision of my life because I couldn't do anything else. Tell me what those first few years back in Amarillo looked like for you. What's well, a little odd, you know, because getting sober is not the easiest thing. And uh, and and I really enjoyed myself in high school. And so, so many of my friends here, that's the Chad that they knew. Right. And so, that, that part's a little bit tough. But because they actually cared about me, it, it wasn't like a long-term issue. But, you know, going from being there and and making a lot of money and having a lot of things to do and the nightlife was great to being here where that's not exactly the case. Sure. Um, Certainly was a a very strange time of my life. I was totally broke trying to figure out what I was going to do next. Um, And everything that I'd been doing for literally the last decade almost, it was like I had to stop all of it. Yeah. So, And if you had an addictive personality, it wasn't just the cocaine. It wasn't just the alcohol. It was like playing poker every day, yeah. most likely, or yeah. the, the adrenaline rush that you get in a game. So I did not play poker for 10 years. Wow. Because it was so interconnected for me. And finally, my wife said, you're good at it. You love it. Like, you should you should hop back in. It's I think it's time, you know. And so so I love to play. Mm-hmm. Um, Just with some guardrails in place, I yeah, guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the thing is, had I not fallen into those other pitfalls, you know, I might still be doing that in Vegas now. You know, it just, it was... It's not that I was great at it, even. It's just that I figured out how to make it work for myself. So... That was really the the biggest thing for me is that everything connected. And so when I got here, I had to sort of restart my life completely from scratch with uh, with no money and and no idea what's next. Okay. 
what did you find then? What what ended up being next? So it's it's kind of crazy how this happened because my mom is amazing and uh, and she said you can sleep on my couch as long as you need to. I have one rule: got to come to church with me on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And as cliche as it sounds, like what happened next was I found God. <laughs> you know, I I, uh, Which, I mean that's pretty common also yeah. for people who are either going through twelve steps or, or whatever, breaking that cycle of addiction, mm-hmm. like higher power, whatever that looks like, that's where they end up. Yeah, so I ended up in an, in an incredible church with some really great mentors. I made a bunch of friends who absolutely supported me, and I took sort of that serial entrepreneurial thing that's sort of in me, um, and I started to help people. And so that was sort of the season that led to everything that we're doing now is, you know, I wasted a lot of time, a lot of money, and and just a lot of heartache on stuff that didn't matter at all. Mm-hmm. And so when I found my community, the thing that I really wanted the most was to make a difference. And I felt like I sort of had a lot of redemption that needed to happen. Like in the beginning, part of what I was trying to accomplish was sort of to offset yeah. the person that I had been. And, uh, and so that's really how I got started in the entire nonprofit world. Okay. So tell me about your nonprofit. Uh, I know Axe Community. Um, listeners may recognize that name. So tell me what you ended up doing and sort of the, the needs that you saw and how you thought, okay, I'm going to take this entrepreneurial bent and figure out a way to meet these needs. Sure. So this amazing church that I was going to, it's more church. Mm-hmm. Um, they hired me as the college pastor. And Axe Community started as a group of about 80 college kids who really had the desire to help people. And our very first huge thing was after the wildfires in 11, Mm -hmm. um, we built four houses. Okay. My college group of 80 kids raised the money, found the contractors, did the work, some of it ourselves, and we built and helped build four houses. And that sort of opened up a lot of opportunity. So then the the leaders of the church kind of came to me and were like, you know, some people are made to be inside the church. Some people need to be out in the city, and we think you're that second guy. And so we don't want to hold you back. So you're not going to be our college pastor anymore, but we're going to give you a couple years to go figure it out. We're going to keep paying you. Okay. Go figure it out. So in that two years, dreamed, thought, tried to find gaps in the city and, and landed on that we really wanted to help families who were sort of on the path towards homelessness, but not there yet. All right. So started doing a lot of work in the San Jacinto neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And then the perfect building came up at the perfect time, and, and we bought it. And we opened a resource center in, uh, in San Jacinto, and that was a decade ago now. Tell people what that building was. So uh, it... it in the beginning, it was an early childhood intervention, and then it kind of changed hands a few times, but it was literally in the center of the area that we were calling San Jacinto. And so we bought it and turned it into a food pantry, a clothes closet, a hygiene closet. There's a baby room there where uh, where new moms can come get literally everything from clothes to diapers to wipes to formula. And so we we just worked and worked and worked at trying to make the neighborhood better. We painted 37 houses. You know, it was about beautification. It was about so many different things. It was really about trying to improve the neighborhood. That was the, the singular agenda, the singular goal. 
that's kind of where the passion for helping seniors was born. Um, we found a lot of seniors who were on fixed income. Mm -hmm. And I, when I say that, I mean like a thousand bucks a month and, uh, you know, 30, $40 worth of food stamps. Sometimes, sometimes they didn't even have that. And, and so as we helped more and more people, we just found that seniors were a group of people who are underserved and that a lot of people don't even realize they're underserved because they don't even know they need help. Right. And so we started a, a food program for them, started a lunch for them. And, uh, and then in the last seven years, you know, we've, we've done 80,000 hot meals for seniors out of that building over in San Jacinto. Before we talk much more about the actual work, tell me kind of what you've discovered about the San Jacinto neighborhood. Since that quickly became your home base, you saw that there were a number of needs there. Why specifically that neighborhood? We were dealing with a lot of people from the neighborhood to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the building, it, it just, you walked in it and you, I, I could just see it from the first time we walked in. And it's actually funny because we bought the building and I got the keys and I walked back in it and I went, oh my gosh, what have I done? Mm-hmm. You know, it was on the docket to be torn down when we bought it. And uh, <laughs> it, it, it was really rough. So we put a ton of work into it. Um, but what we realized right off the bat with San Jacinto is that it has a really bad reputation that's not really warranted. Okay. It's people are people, you know, there are, there are things that happen in that neighborhood that also happen in lots of other neighborhoods. Um, but for some reason there is an idea that the people in that neighborhood don't really have the same value. You know, nobody would actually outright say that. Sure. But but when you talk about the neighborhood, the negativity about the neighborhood is so pervasive that you really start to realize that like the people are sort of thrown in there. And what you end up having in San Jacinto is one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the entire city. You know, in the 50s, um, there were so many brand new houses built right, over there. Right. It was a really nice neighborhood. And a big portion of the, the seniors that we serve over there actually live in the houses that they yeah, built. They're still there. They're still there. And then from just a diversity standpoint, there's so many different groups of people that live in the neighborhood together. And it's it's really unique in that respect, you know. You go to a lot of places and you see that it's it's a bit on the segregated side. It's, right. it's kind of a strange thing, um, but you don't see that nearly as much in San Jacinto. And that's one of the things that I've fallen in love with is that it's just such a diverse group of people. And the experience is so different at so many different times because all of these different groups are all dealing with different things and it presents itself um, in a way that allows us to do a lot of different kinds of work. I've always thought about San Jacinto you know, with a lot of fascination because of the things you mentioned, because it is so diverse, because it has so many needs, because it has, like you said, a negative reputation. Sure. It's also the neighborhood that like the Civic and Visitors Bureau points all the visitors to because of 6th Street. Absolutely. And so it's like one of the most trafficked places in town. It's where we want all of our tourists to go. And it also has some of the greatest needs. And that's just such a weird combination Mm -hmm. for a neighborhood like that. Yeah, you don't see that in a lot of places. Um, You could look at a lot of different cities and really struggle to find 
the type of circumstances that mm-hmm. surround San Jacinto. So tell me how Axe Community has changed over the past few years from what you initially started when the building became available and then how you figured out, okay, here's some other things we need to do. So the the senior side hit us, really surprised us. I just, I never imagined that. We bought the building with kids in mind and we did serve and do serve kids, but the seniors really surprised us and we outgrew our building with our senior services in a matter of a couple of years once we really started to focus on that. So we've been looking to expand for years now. And so the the big, new, exciting thing for Axe right now is that last year we bought the old YMCA building downtown. Okay. 50,000 square foot building. Plenty of room. There. Oh, yeah. Basketball gym. Really cool sort of mid-century ranch-style architecture inside. It's just got all these cool things about it. Um, and we have moved our entire senior program over there and have a brand new senior citizens center that we're operating out of there as of May of this year. Uh, And then as we expand inside the building, the first quarter of 24, we expect to to start with our kids programming. And so a lot of really cool opportunities for us to do things that we haven't been able to do over in San Jacinto simply because of the size of the building and everything that we've learned sort of along the way. Does the change in geography impact what you're able to do? I, I know one of the things I've heard about San Jacinto, uh, when people talk about food deserts, is there are a lot of people that just don't have the access to transportation. Mm-hmm. You know, they might have been within walking distance of your old building. Uh, if you move, like, how, how do you keep them involved if they can't necessarily just pop on over? So the first thing that we did was talk about how we don't lose that group. Right. And we provide transportation every single day from the old resource center to the new senior center. Um, and we still own that building and we're, we're starting all kinds of new programs out of it. We have a new family program for the neighborhood that launches at the end of this month. Okay. Um, we are still doing both things. We've been through sort of a transition with the new building where we've done a little bit less in San Jacinto while we assessed how much can they come to us and how much of this needs to stay in the neighborhood. And so a few months in now, we have a much clearer picture of what that looks like. But the answer to your question is that transportation is a big deal in that neighborhood. And so many, almost all of our services are going to stay there. The one thing that we're not doing is we're not having two senior citizen centers. But beyond that, everything we've always done We're rolling out new programs that are a little bit refined from what we used to do, but we're we're addressing all of the same things that we've been addressing for the last decade. Okay. I want to ask about the senior citizens element of it, because what strikes me about your location in the old YMCA there is that it's it's really close, you know, to downtown. It's close to uh, the entire Ware complex, which is a huge senior living community. Uh, it's close to where the old Senior Citizens Association mm-hmm. used to be. So there's there's a lot of senior activity downtown. Um, given that, you know, there's a giant retirement home across the park where residents probably are a little more upwardly mobile, I would, I guess you would say, or on a higher socioeconomic level. How do you all work together? You're, you're, you're all meeting the needs of Amarillo's senior citizens. And so are you partnering together? Is Is it work that 
that kind of overlaps in some ways? What does that look like? It does overlap. And, and I guess the easiest answer I have for you right now is we're still figuring it out. Okay. So we opened May 15th. Um, and it has just been a wild ride since then. Uh, we served about 60 people a hot lunch today, and that's about our average at this point. Um, and then we have all these other activities that are happening. And so part of what we're trying to do is fix the building up at a fast enough rate to meet the growth demand. Right. And, and so part of our issue at the moment is not knowing exactly how to partner with all of these different possibilities because the building isn't fully ready. We have about 7,000 square feet that we've sort of remodeled and that's ready, uh, but we have 50,000 square feet that we yeah. can use. And so what's going to be really interesting and the thing that I love about uh, a town like Amarillo is that everybody is sort of open to working together and we are having a lot of collaborations already with other nonprofits in the city. But one of the things that's a real possibility for us in the near future is that we send transportation, a bus to, to a lot of those different senior living facilities that are literally less than a mile from us. Right. And, and it's just such an easy thing for us to bring those people over. The issue at the moment is that we fed 71 on Monday and I can feed like 90. So the we have to sort of grow, but also keep that growth sustainable. Mm -hmm. And that's a tricky thing to do. Um, you know, you mentioned the other senior center that, that was in uh, Emerald College. Yeah. So the thing that we didn't know when we started our senior centers, how many of those people are still looking for a place? Right. How big is that group going to be? You know, in our first event, we didn't have any idea what to expect. I was like, if we have 30 people, I'll be happy. We had 103, you know? And so, so part of this is just allowing word of mouth and organic growth to, to sort of set the stage for what the next quarter is going to look like. And once we get a, a handle on how much of the building needs to be remodeled for us to really hit our stride, then we'll be able to really focus on all those partnerships. Okay. Um, but, but right now what we're really focused on is just providing the best experience we can for the senior that, that happens to know about it at this moment. And, uh, and as we grow, try and maintain that high level of experience. Okay. What are you calling the senior center? It's Axe Community okay. Senior Center. So you're just maintaining the same yep. branding and stuff like we that. Are. So I want to switch gears one more time. Um, I know that you and your wife recently went to India. Yeah. Actually, a pretty long time in India. Tell me about that trip and and sort of how it came about and what was some of the impact of it. Sure. So COVID was nuts. We work with seniors. The whole world was scared. And we had to do so much curbside. Mm -hmm. It changed our entire model. It changed how we did business. It changed what our days looked like, how often we served. It changed everything. I mean, you were dealing with the most vulnerable population. Absolutely. And trying to be cautious. Mm -hmm. And nobody really knew. Nobody knew what to do. And so we decided to stay curbside for a long time. And what that ended up doing is we still had the same volunteer base and so many of them were working from home. And we, we had all these people who were sort of wanting to still be involved in some way or another. 
And it created this unique opportunity for us to take off for a long time that we would probably never see again. Okay. So that's kind of the backstory of, of how it happened. People in nonprofit don't get a lot of vacation no, time, No, you don't. Right? It's, and, and especially when you're sort of doing the fundraising, but you're also the one in charge of programming. And, you know, I mean, it's just getting away for a week seems impossible sometimes. So, so that's kind of the backstory of how the time presented itself. <laughs> but what's crazy is that when COVID first started, we started trying all of these new dishes. We love going down to the boulevard. There's so many incredible things to eat down there. And our friends would be like, that's that's an Amarillo. And so we started making these little YouTube videos that were literally just for fun. And uh, <laughs> we started putting them out and there was some traction. Hmm. And so as COVID continued and gave this strange opportunity in places like Dallas, where really, really busy restaurants that you could never get a reservation to had nobody inside them. Okay. My wife was working from home and Axe Community was open on Tuesdays. That's it, right? So we would head down to Dallas every once in a while after having some success with these other YouTube videos here in the city. And we would go to these places that you literally can't get a table. And because nobody else was in there, it was the perfect atmosphere for us to film. And so they would bring us all these dishes. We ended up eating just this incredible food and building a decent-sized audience. And and then we found the Indian food magic trick of YouTube. And we did... Like that's a category that it is. gets some traction there. We had no idea, really, but we ate this huge tally, which is just this giant plate of a, a lot of different types of Indian food. And at the time, we were getting like ten to 20,000 views per video, and that thing got 100,000 views in the first week. And we're like, what is going on? So we shot another <laughs> Indian video, and it did incredibly well. And we saw an opportunity to just do something cool. We were making a decent amount of money off of those videos mm -hmm. at this point. And so we started a completely Indian YouTube channel. And we went to New York and we went to Miami and we went to Chicago and we, we ate Indian food all over the United States. And again, we could do this because my wife was working remotely right. and we were only open on Tuesdays and I had all these volunteers to help us. So it just sort of built slowly and steadily towards this idea of let's go to India. Mm -hmm. And so we did. And we ended up spending 50 days wow. in India over two trips and uh, 13 cities. And we ate our way from the north to the south and filmed all of it and put it out on YouTube and had crazy success as far as we were concerned. You know, our top videos were getting three, 400,000 views. Uh, at one point, we ended up with 100,000 subscribers. Wow. You know, none of this was really all that intentional. It was just, it was so cool to be able to go and do this. And so we ended up getting to travel all over the U.S. and India and, and pretty much break even on hmm. all that travel. One of the things I've, I've talked to a lot of people who travel, and India is one of those destinations that your experience of it can be really divisive. People who love to travel will go anywhere or like, yeah, India was not what I thought and I don't know that I'm gonna go back. Or they adore it and they always want to talk about India. 
I wonder what that experience was for you. Uh, and if you could explain a little bit about why it's it's a polarizing place for sure. people. So, so for us, I don't know that I can really answer that as a tourist. Okay. Because we were there for such a specific thing. You know, our shoot days were like 12 hours long. And we would go to a place like Mumbai and and film our longest day there was 16 hours and all of it revolved around the food experience of course we saw some of the sites as well Mm -hmm. but we were trying to find the things that we're not going to find anywhere but india so our experience is very geared towards the food okay um but what i can speak to is uh the people over there if, if I went as a tourist and I was looking for fun, the people make it incredible. And sometimes they make it really rough. Hmm. It's, it's a little bit of everything. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's big. It's too big. You know, Mumbai specifically, the traffic is terrible. It takes forever to get anywhere. But when you go see the historical sites, they're some of the best in the world. The food is some of the best food I've ever had in the world. And so it was very much, I would say, mixed reviews Mm -hmm. from us. We went on a business visa during the end of COVID. All right. And that's not a democracy. And, uh, And it's very difficult to travel. And so we had a lot of challenges that you wouldn't have in a typical uh, trip that that really sort of made it more difficult than it should have been. Uh, but overall, uh, the experience was just a once in a lifetime thing. You think about the United States having a lot of diverse opportunities to go and visit. It's it's even more so in India. You know, there's there's everything from literal safaris like an african safari to these insane historical sites like the taj mahal um and then you throw in just this incredible food journey that we went on and it was one of the most incredible trips we ever took in our life and i wouldn't want to do that trip again though sure i would want to go back as a tourist and not have the rigorous schedule and uh, and have to fly past some of the things that make India so unique. Their culture is unbelievable. And we miss so many of the cultural aspects because we were chasing yeah, this Yeah, you were just thing. in restaurants. And uh, even the religious side. I mean, so many different world religions absolutely. started in India, Hinduism, Buddhism, yeah. And we did go to, you know, we, we visited a lot of temples. Of course, we went to the Taj Mahal. But so much of our time was spent in the older parts of these cities in their street food areas mm-hmm. because that's what people are the most interested in. What we missed out on was a lot of the modern things that over the past 10 to 15 years has made India such an incredible place to travel to because we were focused more on the old history. And, you know, you get into those older sides of Delhi or Kolkata or some of those other places, and it's it's the parts that you would warn a tourist not necessarily to go to. Sure. That's what we sort of flock to. So it's hard to compare it to any kind of normal trip because it was so hyper-focused on the the cuisine and the the different 
incredible ways that they use their food there that it, it sort of didn't allow us to get the full picture. I cannot wait to go back because there are places in Kerala, for example, it reminded me of the Caribbean. Hmm. It was gorgeous and the food was a thousand percent different than what we had in Delhi. Um, Kolkata was so different because it has this real Asian influence. And so you eat a lot of what you call Indo-Chinese food. And it's an Indian-Chinese fusion that's just, you know, it's just mind-blowing flavors. And so it was uh, it was a really cool experience. But I wouldn't suggest that particular thing for most people because unless that's what you're into, yeah. it's a tough trip. Okay. I just want to ask this question, and this may be weird, but a lot of people talk about who, who visit India come home talking about the poverty because it's it's very in your face. It's very different. You are someone who deals with people living in poverty in Amarillo. Did it teach you anything or did it help you understand or did it bring you a new perspective maybe uh, to the work that you do here with those individuals? It's really different. The, the poverty there looks quite a bit different than poverty here. Uh, and, and in a lot of ways, the thing that struck me about the people there is that the people who were in this unbelievable poverty, it's, you know, you, you look at it and you just go, my gosh, how is somebody not doing something about this? They don't know anything different. They're happy. Their kids are running around, enjoying life. It's really hard. But what you you kind of see there is that because it's kind of commonplace, especially mm-hmm. in the north of India, because it's so commonplace, it's you don't really see a lot of people feeling sorry for themselves. There's not the idea that they're going to get out of it somehow, like you have the opportunity to potentially do here. And so people live their life in in this poverty, and they've sort of accepted it. And they're at peace with it. And you see really happy people. Hmm. And that is was what struck me the most was how happy people seem to be in a situation that seemed like forcing a smile would be difficult. Right. Um, so it's, it's hard to compare because it's so wildly different. And I don't know that I really learned anything other than... Uh, People can find a way to be content. And and so we really try and build a culture where people aren't overly negative. Okay. Because it doesn't do a lot of good. You know, you can sit and talk to a senior, for example, who's in a spot that they really can't fix. And you can go down that road with them of how horrible it all is. Or you can try and help them make little adjustments to their life that matter and make sure that they have friendships and that their health is okay. And and what I really think I took away was that as much as we're fighting poverty, we also should be trying to build a culture where people who are living in some form of that don't feel like they have to be miserable okay. because I, I kind of feel like a lot of the time the messaging is if you don't have all of this, whatever this would be, then you should be doing 
X, 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 right? There's so many things that we put pressure on people to do. And what I saw was that when they took the pressure off, they were able to live a life that was happier. And so that's kind of the main thing I would say I brought home was that happiness is not necessarily attached to what you have. This week's episode is supported by Wick Realty. I've recorded every interview over the past few years in my home studio. My family and I love our house. We love our neighborhood. And we're here because Wick Realty helped us sell our previous home and buy this one. Wick is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. So if you're looking to buy a house, if you're selling, if you're building, if you're in search of investment property, even if you're a first-time homeowner, talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's wickrealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. Hey, Amarillo is also supported by attorney Dean Boyd, and this message is pretty personal. My son Owen was in a a bad wreck at Texas A&M right after we dropped him off for his sophomore year. It wasn't his fault, but he got broadsided by another driver and it rolled his car. Owen climbed out the sunroof and walked away from it, and we are grateful for that. But his car was totaled, and Owen was left with a shoulder injury. One of our first calls was to Dean Boyd's office. Dean had been a guest on this podcast back in 2019. I knew his story, but it wasn't until Owen became a client that we really understood what he does and how meaningful it is. Working with his office was amazing. They treated Owen right, they answered our questions, they made the whole process seamless, and they were able to negotiate a settlement that covered our son's medical bills and satisfied all of us. For us as parents, Dean's office was a lifeline during a really stressful period. So I I can't say enough good things about the law office of attorney Dean Boyd. If you've been hurt in a wreck, call him at 806-242-3333 or visit deanboyd.com. Look, I'm thankful for Dean Boyd, and I'm thankful for his support of Hey Amarillo. Okay, I'm back with Chad Connor. Chad, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas. And his collection includes fossils that show how the ancient bison evolved into the modern-day American buffalo. You can see the different skull shapes and horn links and all those different things. Learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, when you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? Everything that I hope for kind of is a quality of life type of thing. What I, what I would hope for in 10 years is that we would have some sustainable growth that led to some quality of life improvements, like a civic center. Like, mm-hmm. we, we got to do that, in my opinion. Um, some city beautification, I think, would be a really great thing for Amarillo. Uh, I think another thing would be I'd love to kind of hit the metrics to be able to bring in a Trader Joe's or a, an HEB. Or, You'd have a lot of people <laughs> lining up behind you for that. And I, and I think all of that is completely based around being able to to become appealing to to those brands. And so I think that all of it is is a piece of that. But I think that finding a way to, to keep our identity as a community but to grow sustainably to a point where we can bring in some of the things that will improve our lives will just make this city infinitely better. Okay. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? 
So I, I sort of touched on it earlier. I'm going to call it unintentional segregation. Okay. I think that human beings by nature are very comfort driven. And I feel like, especially in Amarillo, we tend to be around what we know, who we know, uh, more than I've seen in other places. Some of the kindest and most friendly people in the world, but also people who are very much sort of ingrained in, in the way that things have been for a long time. And so even, even as a senior center, we see this, you know, there are senior centers that are uh, predominantly Hispanic, mm-hmm. predominantly African-American, uh, you know, we're, we're 80% uh, white. And I want to see us enjoying culture together. I look at that as an actual problem. I think that, mm-hmm. that as a, uh, someone who's in charge of something that can try to do something about it. One of our biggest goals is we have got to find ways to bring different culture together because we're missing out on so much when we don't. So I hope that makes sense. No, it okay. makes total sense. What does this area not have enough of? So I'll, I'll preface this one by saying that you go down to the boulevard and there's some of the most incredible food you're going to find anywhere. We have incredible Thai food. We have incredible taco trucks. There's so many things down there that are great. But what I would like to see is a little bit more international flair. Okay. Um, some of my favorite things, dim sum. Uh, you know, I, I have to travel. To, we don't. Yeah, we don't have any. To go get a, a just a simple soup dumpling. You know, that seems crazy to me. Uh, and yet we have a hundred Thai places. You know? <laughs> right. But like soup dumplings are, are one of my favorite things in the world, but dumplings in general. And, and we just don't have that. Um, another thing I would love to see, and this is a problem in all of the United States, not just Amarillo, but I would love to see some South Indian food here, some Indian street food. Most of what people eat in the United States is North Indian food. Okay. Punjabi style, Delhi style food. And there's so much more to that. It's unbelievable the layers that Indian food brings. And so I would love for people to be able to experience that. Even just like Korean fried chicken. And, you know, there's some of my favorite dishes I literally just can't get in the city. And it seems nuts to me because okay. they're popular everywhere that, in the world. That makes so. sense. All right. Other than your own, what's your favorite local nonprofit? So I've got to throw out two. One is High Plains Food Bank. Okay. And they're my favorite because they have impacted us from day one. I literally could not run Axe Community without High Plains Food Bank. So to not mention them would be kind of a travesty. My second favorite or my other favorite, I should say, is Mission 2540. Right. I just I love what they do. We actually have an event with them at our new building coming up this week. And uh, I just think that the heart behind it, the execution, it's so smart. It's so lean. They mm-hmm. do things in a way that's just effective, and I, and I love them for that. Well, I, I'm glad to hear that. Right? It's, uh, it's an organization I like, too. What's your favorite local coffee shop? So I'm not a big coffee drinker, but I love going to Palace on Georgia. Okay. So uh, if, if I'm going to go to a coffee shop for a meeting, that's my go-to. Um, 
but I'm just not a big coffee drinker. So I typically don't go to coffee shops for the coffee. It's mostly for the uh, gathering place, for the gathering place element. And I think that they do it as well as anybody. Okay. We've talked a lot about restaurants. What's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? So I'm kind of obsessed right now with a place called Asian Bistro Mm -hmm. on the Boulevard. And, uh, they have two dishes that I just can't get enough of. One is Lao sausage with sticky rice. All right. And they serve it with this incredible fish sauce that just tastes different than anything I've ever had. That combo is so good. But I'm a big Pad Ki Mao guy. Yeah. And it's the best I've ever had. Okay. And so we. I love Pad Ki Mao. So that, that speaks to me. Fair warning. Is it it's, hot? It's hot. Okay. Now you have to tell them if you don't want that. I love that aspect yeah. of it. You know, I complain through every bite, and at the end of it, I'm just like, gosh, I wish there was more. Mm. But it is truly spicy. You know, they they make good use of those uh, Thai red chili peppers. Okay. That's, uh, that's good to know then. What's your favorite Amarillo neighborhood? I grew up in Estacado, mm-hmm. and there's just something about growing up in a place that – you know, I, I just have so many memories of riding my bikes with my friends, all of those parks, the old Estacado pool. Yeah. I think there are places I would rather live. But I, if when I saw that question, I just thought there's no way it can be anything yeah. other than Estacado. There's a nostalgia. There is a nostalgia there. I, I'm also obviously very uh, fond of San Jacinto. You know, you can't spend a decade trying to yeah. improve a place and not really care about it. And, and really, I, I think that... It is better now than it's ever been. Okay. So, This last one I'm going to ask you because you're a food guy. When was the last time you visited the Big Texan? So we took my wife's brother, mm-hmm. um, so my brother-in-law and his kids, about a year ago. And, uh, and it was so funny to throw the calf fries on the table and, you know, I didn't, I didn't, uh, ambush them. I told them what it was first, but the, the looks on her niece's faces were just nuts, but they enjoyed it so much. Uh, you know, we don't ever eat there outside of having somebody in town, but it's, uh, it's something that I always enjoy. But last year, it's been almost a okay. year now. Well, that concludes my eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? So lightning in Amarillo. Yeah. If you have never seen a storm coming, driven to the edge of town, found a place to park, and just watched how incredible a light show when everything is this flat If you've never done that, you're missing out on one of the greatest things I think that the city has to offer because it happens pretty frequently and it's just, it's beautiful. It's peaceful. You think about wanting to like go through some thoughts, just sitting there watching the, the sky light up and you can see for miles and that's what makes it so great. But, uh, but especially, you know, I, I would say the northwest side of town with something rolling in from bushland or man it's just spectacular so kind of a strange one no that is that is a strange one but i agree i think you're right that's that's not something a lot of people would think to do or might be afraid to do Mm -hmm. but you know you're pretty safe in your car it's a good it's not a good conductor of uh, (laughs) electricity because of the tires you know and uh, yeah, that, that sounds great. And you can see it for miles and yeah. miles and miles. So we we go home before we ever get. It doesn't have to be on, on top. Yeah, of we you. don't have to. In fact, the closer it gets, the less impressive it gets because it's just 
bright. You know, you can't see the the individual lightning bolts and stuff. But but yeah, definitely be safe because this is not an area of the world where you want to mess around with severe weather. That's true. But if you do it the right way, it is it's spectacular. All right, Chad Connor, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks again to Chad for the interview. You can learn more about his work at axcommunity.org. Thanks also to episode sponsors, U.S. Cleaners, Wick Realty, Attorney Dean Boyd, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the podcast. And of course, thanks to Angelina Marie for editing the show. Thank you for listening. Hey, Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because people like you listen to it, and I appreciate that. I'm also grateful for the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Wes Reeves, Katie Linger, Cindy Graham, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 314. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>